Luke 22. So I'm, I see this verse as helpful because it's a guide. God, God is guiding us in how we're to resolve these two things. That is God's absolute sovereignty, his determining of what happens in this world, and human responsibility. God does not diminish either of these two things, and we ought not to either. In our effort to emphasize human responsibility, we ought not to diminish the fact that God is sovereign, and everything that happens in this world is part of his plan. And in our emphasis of understanding that God is sovereign and rules over all things, we ought not to diminish the fact that humans are responsible for all of their choices. So we should see this as a guide, and I think it is a helpful guide, and it is a guard as well in how we should reason. Um, If we find ourselves emphasizing one point and then wanting to shape another aspect, um, we ought to be careful that we that uh, we don't do that. Scripture does not do that. Um, So we shouldn't play these off against each other. God doesn't play these things off against each other. He emphasizes one sometimes in one passage. He emphasizes another sometimes in another passage. Um, And we ought to see Scripture as a guide in how we should engage in this. As I was thinking about the this truth that we're seeing in Luke 22, 22, I thought it might be helpful to think about some other aspects of doctrine that reflect that, and that is the doctrine of Scripture. We affirm here a a high view of Scripture that is inspired by God. And uh, when we do that, we are affirming that it is written by humans, but given to us by God. So we might say, the book of Ephesians is written by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, a human, used pen... Well, metaphorically, pen and paper, probably some kind of stylus and uh, papyrus or maybe vellum. And he wrote, or his scribe wrote, um, and he used his experience, his background, and he wrote, and we say he was inspired by God such that we could refer to the book of Ephesians as the word of God. And so even in the doctrine of Scripture, we see, we see this coming together of God's purpose, God's plan. Ephesians is not something where God's waiting around for the Apostle Paul to write. And he goes, you know what? That'll do for Scripture. That's, that's going to be good. I, I can use that. No, God is, from all the time in, in, in the past, had decreed that we would have a book like the book of Ephesians that would fulfill a certain purpose in his instruction for the life of the church. And the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of God. So we might then speak of the primary cause or the remote cause of the writing of Scripture. God caused it to happen. He inspired it. And then there's a secondary or near or observable cause You could sit down and you could see a man called Paul in a room dictating or writing um, Ephesians. And we would observe that. Well, today what I want to do is move our thoughts to consider the nature of human choice in more detail and consider it um, in light of our moral condition as unredeemed people. What is the nature of our willing or our choosing as unredeemed people? Um, This is sometimes called total inability or sometimes called total depravity. They both refer to basically the same thing, just different nomenclature, different terms. Um, Before I do, though, in any more detail, I want to set it up by thinking about Jesus Christ. So as we think about Jesus Christ, we might ask the question, is he worthy of praise? As we think about Jesus' earthly life, a life of perfection, a life of righteousness, is he worthy of praise in what he has done? Uh, And so as we think about the person of Christ, we would say, yes, his life on earth was morally virtuous. It was worthy of praise. Those things that he did, he did with a free will, He freely chose to do all that he did, and all that he did was morally virtuous and worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. In fact, as we look at Scripture and we think of the doctrine of the Incarnation, the Son of God, 
was willingly sent by the Father and being joined to human flesh, he only did what was in perfect conformity to the will of his Father. That is, all that Jesus did was out of his very nature, which is the nature of God. He could do nothing but act according to his nature, which is God. And so it is right to say that Jesus exercised his free will. So whatever we may say of human will, it must be in alignment with what we see modeled for us, shown for us in the life of Jesus Christ. So rather than speaking of free will, as some would define it, as indifference or the choice to act or not act, indifferently in one direction or another, we see in the life of Christ that free will is a person doing as they please based on, there's some particular language, based on previous reflection or based on their thinking and understanding. So we might say Jesus was morally accountable in his total Perfection. And all that he did is righteous and pure and good. And he could do no other because he was acting out of his nature as God. In contrast to Jesus, who is morally accountable in light of his total perfection, we're going to be turning to consider what it is to be morally accountable in our total depravity or total inability. Um, One one theologian made this comment. I thought it was helpful as we reflect on this topic this morning. He says this, The doctrine of total human moral depravity is a hard one and naturally evokes aversion and even incomprehension. It's difficult. It's difficult to consider It's difficult to reflect on the depth of our sinfulness, the comprehensiveness of our sinfulness, the implications of our sinfulness. It is indeed a difficult doctrine. And I think one of, there are many areas that we struggle with in this doctrine, and we're not going to touch on trying to resolve all those, but I think one of the things we struggle with is uh, with this doctrine of the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man is that we, in some way, I think, naturally recoil against God's order. That, in Adam's sin, all those who would come after him, who were born in Adam, are born with a sinful nature. We have a tendency to say, you know what, there's something really unfair about that. Um, I, didn't, I didn't get Adam's choice in the garden. I mean, his choice has doomed us all. And I just want to acknowledge that there is a natural recoiling, a natural sense of unfairness in that doctrine. It is indeed the doctrine of Scripture because it is according to the nature of reality, the way God created humanity. And it's another one of those doctrines where we might not fully understand and there might be aspects of it that we, we grapple to submit to But as we look at Scripture, that is indeed what Scripture says. And we're to to live in humility and and, uh, in in a receptiveness to what Scripture says and seek to understand it and its implications. Okay, so what I want to do is um, look at a number of Scriptures to to survey um, what we understand regarding total inability, the nature of our sinfulness. And I want to give credit, um, not blame, credit. Um, I, I appreciated the way John Piper kind of outlined some of this. And so on the whole, I'm kind of following his outline, but not totally. And anything I say are my own words, not John Piper's. So I just, But I do want to give him credit uh, for this. So I want to look at some various aspects of how Scripture communicates how we function as 
moral agents in light of the fact that we're born into sin, born as children of Adam, born as sinners, born naturally sinning. Um, The first thing I want to look at is the fact that depravity affects every human. That is, the sinful human state is universal. Wherever you bump up against a human, you bump up against someone who is affected by this reality. They are all, we all are together in this, whether here in America or in Australia or in the middle of Africa or in the middle of South America or in the forest regions of Siberia, wherever you are, whatever your lineage is, it all goes back to Adam and we are all born into sin. So Ephesians 2, 3. And you are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is your natural born reality by nature. Romans 5 and 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 51.5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. what's, What's the psalmist saying here? He's saying... You know, before I was really a self-conscious being, before I could speak, what was my state? My state is one of a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are in this state. Psalm 143.2, and do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. That's the state of all humanity. 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. We all are affected by sin. Again, back in Romans 3, what then? Are you better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Even a Jew born in to the people of Israel, descendant of Abraham, Even they are born with this natural state of sinfulness and depravity. Well, the second category here is that our rebellion or our hardness against God is total. That is, it's comprehensive. When you're born, you're not born a partially depraved person and a partial worshiper of God. But we are born with this instinct and this instinct is comprehensively away from God. There is no delight in God's holiness. There's no, here's John Piper's phrase, there's no happy submission to the sovereign authority of God. There is not a weakening here. There is not a neutral lack or, or a lack, a neutrality. That is, there is a, it's not that there's merely a lack of true worship, but there is actual and comprehensive or thorough rebellion against God. So the rebellion or the hardness that we have when we're born is against God and it is total. So Romans 3, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands There is none who seeks for God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice this orientation of heart. This orientation of heart is away from God. There is no desire for God, no seeking for God, no submission to God, no delight in God. John 3.19 This is a judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. There's that natural... Uh, instinct, love darkness. Don't love light, love darkness. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been brought to God. Again, we see here there's loving darkness or loving light. They're the two categories. There's no neutral ground here. 
Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. When we're born, we're born with a natural truth suppression outlook. We love darkness. You know, we see this as we parent. You don't have to give your... Maybe did... Did Joe talk about this last week or the week before? You know, we don't have to sit our children down and teach them how to lie. Or how to be angry. Or how to be selfish. It is so natural. We see it. It's just so easy. We, we as mature people, we know how hard it is to, to resist that as mature people who are redeemed in Christ. And we, we experience a spiritual battle as the flesh and the spirit lost against each other. But without the Spirit, there is just this inclination that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. In Romans 5.14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Still, all those descended from Adam, born in to sin. So our rebellion or hardness against God is total, comprehensive. It's not partial in any way. Next point, in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. We as men and women, everything we do is sinful. Now, this can be misunderstood. Um, So let me give some clarity here, and I think this is important. What this is saying is, that everything we do is corrupted by our unbelief in our natural state. Everything we do is corrupted by our rebellion and unsubmissiveness to God. So Romans 14.23, whatever is not from faith is sin. So is it possible for you to love someone without faith? Is it possible to do a good deed? Without faith? Is it possible to be generous without faith? Is it possible to give your life to save another life without faith? See, the question is not, is it possible to do some externally virtuous deed? The question is, what is the moral inclination behind it? And this doctrine of total rebellion, total inability, is, is speaking of that fundamental heart inclination which is not to love God and be submissive to His rule and to delight in His holiness, but is against Him. It's away from Him. Romans 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews 11, 6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who seek Him. I found this comment by Piper to be quite helpful. He kind of recounted... um, I'm sure a conversation he's had before more than once. He said, someone might come up and say, this doctrine I disagree with. I mean, I could do more evil than I do. And his response is, rightfully so, as we look at this doctrine. Well, you only do evil. You could do worse kinds of evil. But as an unregenerate person... You only do evil. And so there's a mistaking from, I don't kill that person. And that seems like a virtuous thing. Or I haven't held up a bank at gunpoint. But what this doctrine is getting at is, even if you haven't killed someone, you have still sinned in anger. And even if you can point to some virtuous deeds... They're not done out of love for God's righteousness and holiness. That is our natural heart inclination. So we look around and we're we're thankful for God's common grace. We're thankful that we're not all as evil to the extent that we could be evil. And we see in differing periods of history, in differing societies... Some societies who might say are more externally virtuous than other societies. But that is not an argument against what this doctrine is saying. What this doctrine of total, the pervasiveness of our sinfulness and our rebellion against God is that 
whatever is not of faith is sin. So not everyone is as bad as they could be. But everyone who is unregenerate, at base, acts in unbelief. That's the nature of our sinfulness, our natural place as children of Adam. Developing that even further, man's inability to submit to God and do good is total. What, what ability, now we're talking about what ability does, do we have as children of Adam left to ourselves to, do, um, to submit to God? We don't have any. Let's look at Ephesians 2, chapter 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So in this passage in Ephesians 2, Paul is talking about spiritual deadness. I can imagine, as Paul is writing this, this, uh, this is an imaginary conversation. We might say, hey, Paul, like, how dead? And he's like, very dead, comprehensively dead, dead three times over. And he, he, he categorizes three ways in which we are spiritually dead. Or we might say three ways that we are in spiritual bondage. In bondage to the world and to the devil and to the flesh. In Colossians, Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. just want to go to a few passages to draw out this comparison here from Ephesians. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we are dead or in bondage to this world. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. First Corinthians 2, verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there's a world wisdom, a wisdom of this world, which views reality a certain way, and it renders them in, unable to comprehend spiritual wisdom. And the only way you can comprehend spiritual wisdom is through the work of of God's Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 5 also speaks of walking not just according to the course of this world, but walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. So let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, and I want you to see how Paul talks about this reality in another passage. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4. In their case, that is those who are veiled, they're not seeing the gospel. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan is doing a blinding work. There is... A spiritual work of Satan that blinds us to spiritual reality. And then finally, we are bound, we are dead according to our fleshly inclinations. John chapter 8. So John chapter 8 and verse 34. Here Jesus uses this strong word 
Uh, as, as he speaks of our spirit, uh, Paul speaking of spiritual deadness, that's the word he used. Jesus speaks of the term of slavery. So John eight thirty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So here we see Jesus um, affirming both our enslavement in our natural state, our enslavement to sin, but also the connection between our enslavement to sin and, as it were, our submission to Satan, our father. That's how we come into the world. We are caught in sin, enslaved to sin, and in our sin we are unable and unwilling to submit to God. Let's go to Ephesians 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. How do the Gentiles walk? How do the unredeemed walk? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Jeremiah 17 The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 2.14. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually praised. Okay, two more um, passages I want to read under this section. John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. And then Romans 8, 5. We're going to read uh, four verses here. Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So I just want to draw out a few statements here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. For not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And we read this and we might have the inclination to say, well, if you cannot please God, how is it? That you're morally accountable. I just want to camp on these verses for a minute. And I I, I want to kind of draw this out. So if we have a view of moral accountability. If we have a certain view of moral accountability. We look at these verses. And we recoil against the implications. I might say something like. "If, if, If I cannot but rebel against God. Why am I held morally accountable to God? At the very least, what we must realize is that is not the way Scripture reasons. Scripture here is very clear that the heart of the unredeemed is a heart of rebellion against God, set in sin, dominated by sin, enslaved to sin, delighting in sin, and we are held morally accountable in that state. To say it another way, in our unregenerate state, we are so in love with sin, so satisfied by sin, that we cannot but do sin, and in the doing more of sin, we actually increase our guilt. 
you know, illustrations can break down, but I think this might be a helpful illustration to consider something of the theological reality, the, the truth that we're talking about here. So we, we might think in terms of our physical ability. Let's, let's give an illustration, and I, get the, I, I attribute this to Piper as well. Let's, let's give an illustration. Let's say you're chained to a chair, and um, someone says to you, okay, stand up. And you resist, and, you, and you, you can't stand up because the chain is physically restricting you. In contrast, you're in a chair, and you're not chained to the chair, but the chair is so comfortable, so delightful, so satisfying that someone says to you, get up out of the chair, and you're like, I like this chair. This chair is comforting. It's satisfying. I delight to stay in this chair. Everything about this chair is satisfying to me. I don't want to get out of this chair. Then, in that instance, you're not, as it were, physically chained, but the instincts of your heart and desires are such that you continue to stay in the chair out of your desires, and you choose to stay in the chair, and your choice is a reflection of the orientation of your heart, what has captivated your heart. Uh, let me read a comment by um, Herman Bavink, a theologian. He says this, Humans have not, as a result of sin, lost their will and their increated freedom. The will, in virtue of its nature, rules out all coercion and can only will freely. What humans have lost is the free inclination of the will towards the good. They now no longer want to do good. They now voluntarily by a natural inclination, do evil. The inclination, the direction of the will, has changed. And then Augustine says this, the will in us is always free, but it is not always good. So what I'm, what I'm hoping that, that we, we, we work towards here is that we have the scripture shape our understanding of how we should think about our choice, our willing, our desiring, and our sinning, and that God shapes the way we think about those things. And uh, that we have the Word of God directing us and shaping us in um, realizing that why are we guilty? Without the redeeming work of Christ, why are we guilty? We're guilty... Because we willingly choose to sin. And it's part of our nature. And all that we do is sin. In rebellion against God. We, as it were, voluntarily live out the desires of our hearts. And that's what scripture indicates. Is the nature of our natural condition as men and women born, descended from Adam... The one who has sinned. Okay, I have a few moments here in my outline. Do you have, um, I know this is risky. Um, yes, George. Yes. I think if you use the word fully depraved in the term in terms of are we have we lived out all the depravity we could, but I would use the word fully as in completely touched by depravity. So maybe fully is ambiguous, but I, if I understand the, the kind of direction of your question, that's that's correct. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking around. I don't think anyone's murdered anyone in here. Praise God. Like, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't meet Christ in prison because we committed murder. Um, we aren't as bad as we could have been. Right? Praise God for that. But we didn't do anything out of love for God or submission to God before the Spirit transformed our hearts.
Yeah. Um, so I think you're, I hear a theoretical question and a practical question. Theoretically, yeah. Practically, I'm not even sure I'd like discuss the doctrine of total inability necessarily. Um, I think I'd just emphasize, um, yeah, you haven't committed anyone, you haven't committed murder, but Jesus says that, this, that the sin of anger is connected to murder. So you, praise God you haven't murdered anyone. I'm thankful. I'm, I'm glad you're not ready to murder me. I know you don't like me sharing the gospel here, but, but thank you for your graciousness. But you might have been angry with me, or you might have been angry with someone who did something to you, and, and, and God calls anger sin. So I think I'd just kind of focus more on the particulars um, rather than some of the theological things we're talking about here. And, and I think um, any fair-minded unbeliever is going to acknowledge they've done some things wrong. And the more you talk to them, if they're really humble, they'll, they'll fess up a little more as well. Yeah. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah, what? Give me that verse again. I'm, I, uh, Romans 5, 14. Yeah, thank you. So if you look at verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So uh, the, the nature of Adam's sin in the garden, he was, in a, we used the term, in a place of innocence, and he rebelled against a direct command of God. Um, then verse 13 uh, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come I think the implication is though there wasn't um, there wasn't a mosaic law and there wasn't like a direct command like Adam had don't eat of that tree Yet they were they still had hearts in rebelling against the Creator and they were still living out in that attitude of unbelief in, in their lives. So they were still sinning. It's not like they heard the command and rebelled against a specific command, but their hearts were living in rebellion. And and I think of Romans one, what Paul says there, though there is though the evidence of God is in creation, yet uh, they refuse to honor him as the creator or give thanks to him, right? So Paul there doesn't talk about them breaking a particular command. He talks more kind of in, uh, like a global rebellion. They just don't submit to creator, the creator. So I think that what Paul is saying there is helped us. We're helped by Romans 1 and what he's saying there. So. Are you, you mean as far as in the crying out that is necessary for salvation or you think of the crying out in what is, a, what, what is happening 
before we're redeemed? Okay, I think I, I, th- if, yeah, I think I understand, and um, I'll hop past to Joe into that question next week. Um, if I understand the heart of your question, um, what 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 you I, if I, what I hear you drilling down is like, what is the nature of the spirit's work in unregenerate people, and how do we account for some people seemingly being awakened to? the nature of their sin in some way, or the consequences of their sin, who end up not trusting in Christ, and some who seem to be awakened who do trust in Christ. It, it, am I kind of drilling down to what I'm hearing? So, um, firstly, as we look at Scripture, we must acknowledge there's a lot of mystery there. Um, and as external observers, we may mistake the fleshly desires that are stirred up against misery of sin, who want relief from sin, and spirit-given desires that awaken the heart to submit to the Creator. And oftentimes I think that looks the same. So much so that when Jesus gives the parable of the seeds, right? And, and I, I understand I'm answering this from a certain theological position when I say this. Um, but if you, look at, if you look at the parable of the seeds along with the parable of the field, there's a field and the sower goes out and sows wheat. And then a wicked man comes out and sows tares in that field. There are two kinds of plants in that field. One is wheat, genuine wheat. Um, and, and you have to wait till it comes to maturity to figure out what is the genuine wheat and what, what are the tares. And it could look the same. I think one of the things Jesus is communicating there is you, you can look and it seemed like um, there is a genuine spirituality that, that people are really part of the kingdom. And it might seem like that. But they're not. And that parable gives us some indication that, that it, it's, a, it's a superficial similarity, but the cause is fundamentally different. I don't know if that is kind of getting at. Yeah, to me that sounds similar. So the Israelites, some, some would have been crying out, perhaps out of faith. Yes. They want relief. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's even in some ways like expanded as you think about the the situation of Israel and then of Judah before the exile, and and um, their pride, and um, you know some of the kings they 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 ask God for deliverance but they just don't want to get killed as opposed to wanting to honor and glorify God in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, Andy. To follow up on what you were saying about the wheat and the tares, is that kind of getting at what uh, in Hebrews it talks about when it says some who have tasted of the spiritual gifts will will fall away, and if they do, they can't be they can't come back. I think it's Hebrews four or Hebrews six. Yeah, I think overall we're, t- we're, we're wrestling with the same thing. And there are various other passages uh, in, in Paul's epistles as well where he talks about if indeed you continue in the faith, which kind of go along with some of the passages in Hebrews about that. So now we're dealing with, we're kind of moving and we're, we're, quite, we're talking about what is the nature of true regeneration and, and the perseverance of, of the saints. Um, My mind would go to more the parable of the seeds 
Yeah, yeah, they're similar, but the parallel seeds where it seems to be some kind of reception to the truth. There seems to be some embracing of submission to God, but that is not an enduring submission, and it does not bear any fruit. So yeah, that I, I think they're they're connected. As Jesus in the Gospels is trying to teach us something about um, the makeup of people who claim to be followers of God. And as the writer of Hebrews is specifically addressing a group of people and warning them and encouraging them to persevere. Yeah. Okay, I want to uh, just finish then and um, consider maybe the most sober part here uh, as we think about our inability and that our total inability is not... Um, is not something that opposes the, the free, voluntary choice and will of us as people. Ephesians 2.3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. To be by nature dead in sin, to be by nature enslaved to sin, is to be by nature in this place of being a rightful recipient of God's holy wrath against us in our sin. Second Thessalonians. God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the perseverance of the Lord from the glory of his power. In Matthew twenty five forty six, These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And... Part of, the, part of the tension of this discussion that we're having and as we're wanting to attend to, the, to what Scripture teaches here is, is the sense, firstly, of the abhorrence of eternal destruction to, to think about what that is and why that is. We might say something like, well, why... Should someone be eternally punished for a finite number of sins? How, how is that fair? So even that question itself um, is, should cause us to go back to Scripture and say, if Scripture says there is eternal punishment for sin, and I say, that seems unfair, why is there eternal punishment for a finite number of sins? then what we should say is not eternal destruction seems wrong or unfair, but what about sin do I not understand that makes eternal destruction unreasonable? And so, so we want to be always going back to Scripture, being aware of kind of the way we intuitively question or find Scripture unfair or difficult to understand and to pause to look at the scripture and as it were turn the question around and go I need to submit to scripture here what am I not understanding what do I need to to be humble to what, do, what, what other passages do I need to restructure my intuitions my understanding and, and I, I, I I think as we come to this to, to reflect as people who've tasted of the blessing of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of sins forgiven. Um, Pastor Joe, next week, will spend some time talking about the sovereignty of God in saving sinners, the doctrine of election. And we should pause here and just reflect and give praise to God. We were dead in sin. We were enslaved to sin. Our hearts were longing to sin delighting in sin. There was nothing in our hearts that, that was pointing us or motivating us or driving us to submit to the Creator, to seek His blessing, to taste of His goodness. Our hearts and our minds were so thoroughly, comprehensively captured by sin that we were not seeking God. But God, in His grace, has done a work so that we'd be sitting here this morning with the desire to worship this God. 
that we see him as good and worthy of our love and worthy of our submission. That we, we want to continually reorient the inclinations of our hearts to be in submission to him. That, that we keep seeking more and more of the blessing of living in conformity to the spirit of God rather than in conformity to the fleshly instincts which, which still hang around this side of glory. And sometimes I think we can be discouraged by the battle we feel, by the tension we feel of sinful desires and our desire to please the Lord, the attraction of sin, and yet the attraction of the blessing of fellowshipping with God, of submitting our desires to Him, and of experiencing His Spirit's work in us. And I just want to say, we have some better days and we have some worse days. But I want to remind you that were it not for the work of the Spirit, you might be miserable in your sin, but you would not be experiencing the fight of the Spirit and the flesh in your life. And I think even as you repent of sin and you see how you've sinned and you grieve at your sin, like, how, how could I do that? Why would I do that? How stupid. And as you go to Christ again and delighting in His forgiving work give God thanks thank you that I actually see my sin thank you that I hate my sin help me to hate it more thank you that I see you as a God worthy of my love and my trust and submission help me to live in dependence upon your spirit more and more and take it as an opportunity to delight in God's provision and care and love for us so my final comment before we pray if we do not grasp the comprehensive bondage of our sinful nature, we will not be impressed with the power of God demonstrated in our salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, you are a powerful God. You are the God who in your glory and your power raised Jesus from the dead. And we learn from scripture that it is that very power that is required to raise us up from spiritual death into spiritual life. Thank you that we have received and experienced your glorious, wonderful power in delivering us out of the kingdom of darkness, that we might be now be transferred into the kingdom of the Son of your love. Glorious Father God, we worship you and thank you for your mercy to us in Christ and the ongoing powerful working of your spirit within us. Amen.